landscape can be a tool for equality and social justice. It was really encouraging to see such a diverse range of different built environment specialists coming together to collaborate. To some extent had to sit back and listen and that was very much the starting point of the, the process. We didn't go with an agenda, we didn't go with our initial thoughts, we went with open ears and open faces to try and build those relationships. Landscape architects really do have a leading role to play in the evolution of our cities, looking at how we can future-proof um, our, our places, streets and spaces. What we wanted to create was vibrancy, enhanced animation, a longer period of use extending into evening hours. We saw this as an opportunity to, rather than just put back what was there, look at how we could evolve the brief and improve the, the site. I think it's up to us to continue to build the profile of the landscape architect as a discipline. You're listening to Talking Landscape, the podcast which explores the big issues in placemaking nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects and practitioners. I'm your host, Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal on which this podcast is based. In this episode, we'll be looking at two public green spaces which are both underway in London. Joining me are Neil Manthorpe and Kate Digney. Neil leads the Atkins London Landscape and Urban Design Studio, which has just won planning permission from the City of London Corporation to upgrade and introduce biodiversity gains in the second part of the High Walkway, which runs around the Barbican Centre and the Barbican Estate. Kate is Head of Landscape at Levitt Bernstein, where she heads sustainable design across a range of projects. Recently, she has been master planning a park in North London, where she's been working closely with the local community to deliver a space which addresses both climate resilience and the needs of a fast-growing population. Before we start, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, well, how you got to be working in the field of landscape architecture, why you chose it, and how you got to where you are at the moment. Let's start, Neil. Tell us a little bit about where you started. Well, I think from a young age, I was always very interested in, in people, places, um, different cultures, and in particular, travel. And I think that started to inform the academic choices I made at a young age, got into geography, uh, design and technology. And during my GCSEs, I had the opportunity to work with a local authority on a, a small park and a play area. And that really sparked my early interest in landscape architecture and took that on to university, went to Sheffield, which is a fantastic city, a fantastic course, studied landscape design with planning and would, would really recommend that to anyone looking at a career in, in places in the external environment. Brilliant. Thank you. So, Kate, tell us a little bit about where you started. I won't take you back to 1981, Paul, but um, my family background, my granddad was a blacksmith, my mum was a self-taught maker, and I was a very creative child, also very interested in the outdoor environment. My textiles teacher at school pointed me in the direction of landscape architecture. Her sister was a landscape architect working for Norwich City Council, and I was packed off to go and do some work experience there. Also, a little bit of experience working with the British Trust for Conservation Volunteers on the Fens. So that was a, a great weekend, and it really cemented the idea that that was a, you know, a great career opportunity for me. And I suppose I've been on that travelator ever since, 
like Neil, studying at um, the mighty Sheffield University. And I did a bachelor's, um, a dual degree in a BSc in ecology with landscape architecture, and then followed the conventional route, shall we say, into the career. Um, and I would say one thing, I think my interest didn't originally lie in the people side of things, but it is very much developed into that and how landscape can be a tool for equality and social justice almost. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you and welcome. Let's start with you, Neil. Earlier this year, the Barbican Centre hosted the 2023 EcoCity World Summit. This biannual international gathering of city leaders, which started in 1990, looked at a whole range of issues around the future of the planet. Um, Neil, what for you were some of the key takeaways? Well, I think firstly, it's fantastic that the industry are running events like this. It was really encouraging to see such a diverse range of different built environment specialists coming together to collaborate. And I think some of the, the messages that I took away were the step changes in policy that are allowing us to more readily design in a more sustainable way. And I think it was interesting to sort of note that Whilst we can do this with new builds and new projects, I think one of the key messages for me is around how we can look after what we already have, how we can look to and explore retrofitting um, existing sites. One thing that really surprised me about the summit was the lack of a consensus amongst speakers as to the role of built environment practitioners in effecting real change when it comes to sustainability and the greener future of our cities. If I can take one example that I wanted to discuss with you, on the one hand, we had figures like the architect Norman Foster calling for more compact cities connected with good public transport based on the continued investment in tall buildings, obviously made of concrete, glass and steel. On the other hand, we had the architect Yasmin Larry calling for a radical shift away from the capitalist modes of production, including the use of cement steel, concrete, and glass. And she was arguing for a fundamental shift in the practice of architecture. So my question to you is, where do you think landscape architects fit into the future of designing green cities? Landscape architects really do have a leading role to play in the evolution of our cities, looking at how we can future-proof um, our, our places, streets, and spaces. And I think we're one of the few built environment professions that are involved with every part of the design spectrum. So looking at policies for our cities, looking at defining those briefs involved with design concepts, but through to the, the, the detailing of sites, the implementation, and then the management and maintenance of these sites as well, as well as the, the assessment of these projects as well. So I think landscape architects have a, an important role at every level. And I think one of the professions that really does look to build in nature-based solutions and sustainable approaches to design. So I think there's a, there's a really key role that they can play. At the summit, the topic you talked about and presented was your work on the Barbican Estate, and this is what you also wrote about in the journal. Um, the Barbican Estates and the Art Centre, one of the most recognisable post-war projects in the country, loved by many, uh, including those who have the opportunity to live there. You are currently working on stage two of a project started about a decade ago. Um, tell us a little about the site and why a transformation is needed. The Barbican Estate is a fantastic example of brutalist architecture designed in the 60s by Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn. 
it was a monument to hope in architecture. And I think I'd really encourage people to visit the site because it's a fantastic example of a, a mixed-use cultural centre with um, residential dwellings um, mixed in. The area that I'm working on is the podium landscape, a really uh, unique environment that, that's equally worth visiting. And one of the challenges the City of London was facing is that the waterproofing membrane has come to the end of its life cycle. And now water, particularly with the heavy rainfall at the moment, um, is leaking into the occupied spaces below. So our original brief was to look at how to address that challenge. Tell us a bit about your designs for the site. I mean, one thing I hadn't realized um, before I was shown around is that the high walkway at the Barbican is the largest public space in the very crowded city of London. So um, tell us a bit about what your, your plans are, but also what you're having to deal with. Yeah, it's a, it's a really significant space and it's pedestrian only. Um, it, it's raised up at podium level. And to repair the waterproofing membrane, we need to take up the hard standing area across the entirety of the podium and we saw this as an opportunity to rather than just put back what was there look at how we could evolve the brief and improve the the site so some of the sort of headline changes that we're making is there's a 70 percent increase in the greening there's a 240 percent improvement in the biodiversity net gain but through the design process we've used microclimate analysis and modeling to uh, assess the urban island heat effect wind modeling, wind directions to look at opportunities to, to mitigate this and, and make it a more comfortable place for both people and nature. The other role that we've had is working with Nigel Dunnett from the University of Sheffield, looking at the planting scheme um, that's going in there. I think that's really helped us with the um, improvement in the biodiversity for the site. I mean, one of the things that really fascinated me about what you said in your article was that you had increased by 70% the green infrastructure. Um, my understanding that for phase one, the green infrastructure was very much restricted to the original uh, footprint of, of the landscape. And clearly, you have had to negotiate with Historic England as well as the heritage team at the City of London. Um, I'm interested to know how you achieved that and what the significance that might be more widely. I think this is a challenge that all landscape architects face on many of the projects they get involved with. And a key part of it was the stakeholder engagement. So speaking to the residents, speaking to local businesses, but as you say, Historic England were one of those key stakeholders that we had to um, engage with very early on. One of the important things, and I sort of refer back to the eco city and the step change in policies, the City of London has a climate action strategy. There's some key aspirations that they're looking to achieve within that um, around sustainable design principles. Using that policy, we were able to enter into a discussion with uh, Historic England at how we could start to enhance the site from a sustainable ecological perspective while still respecting and retaining many of the historical detailing and features. So we worked quite hard to retain that original vision from Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn to work with the scheme for that, that Janet Jack evolved in the 1980s and, the, and the, the, the planting and greening that she brought through whilst um, enhancing the, the, the green coverage that we're able to introduce to the site. When you were doing your research for that, do you have a sense of what the original architect's aesthetic was? For this space, for the podium, it was originally put in as a very hard space, a very hard podium landscape it, it was 
predominantly brick tiles. There were small areas of planting. And I think that's why the 1980 scheme was brought in by Janet Jack, because it led to quite a harsh urban environment with the, the higher wind speeds, the, the heat island effect. And she took it to a level that we're now looking to, to build upon more, more than just a, a roof or a space to look at, to, to create it as a place for, for people to come and enjoy. Let me ask you a question about geraniums, because one thing that any visitor to the barbican will notice is that many residents uh, will have concrete balconies. They're, they're absolutely uniform across the whole estate. And in most cases, people use red geraniums. Has this influenced your thinking at all? I think what the balconies bring to the Barbican is a softening of its borders. You've got the contrast between the brutalist architecture and the softening of the, the spaces where we're introducing further planting in that contrast between the, the, the soft landscape and the, the hard brutalist architecture. And I think that does complement what is going on with many of the balconies as well as a, as a, as a holistic piece. Um, there's been a lot of interest recently in kind of reevaluating the history of post-war brutalist architecture. And I suppose in the way the Barbican and the National Theatre are two of the finest examples. It's really interesting to see the way that you are choosing to respond to the landscape, as well as the way in which many residents are responding. Do you think there are some interesting lessons for a general re-evaluation of post-war architecture, but through the lens of landscape architecture. Definitely. And I think that's something that we are quite proud of about what we've managed to achieve with the site. We, we've looked, of course, at the circulation of pedestrians, the movement of people through the space. But we've also considered how we can bring more nature into our cities. And I think there is a real opportunity to look at retrofitting other estates um, across the UK in a similar way because it isn't just about what we can do with new builds, it's how we can retrofit existing estates and existing places to, to enhance our climate-resilient approach. Brilliant. Well, we will come back to that with the, that edition of the journal. Kate, let me turn to you. Levitt Bernstein has been master planning the renewal of a North London park. Can you tell us a bit about the site and also about the community um, in which it's set? So the park, Down Lane Park, is set within Tottenham Hill, which is a rapidly changing part of London. Residential-led regeneration is taking place. That's bringing many new homes, thousands of new homes onto the doorstep of an existing community. Um, so the park sits, if you like, um, as the kind of the jam in the middle between the new homes, which frame the eastern edge of the park. They also point towards Tottenham Hill Station and the transport. On the western side, the park is very open facing the existing community with very traditional housing stock that runs as a ladder of streets towards the Tottenham High Road and the, the stadium thereafter. So it's in the middle of a, a real mixed melting pot, which is constantly changing. The community is diverse. It has a real fondness for the park. The park itself is a story of two halves, really. The north and the south quite distinct from each other. The north being a traditional parkland character with park railings. And then the south being where the existing active uses are clustered. Permeability into the park is quite poor. And that's one of the key challenges that we were faced with, both in terms of our approach to the park, but also how it knits into the wider strategic moves for Tottenham Hill as a piece of regeneration. Whenever we speak to landscape architects on this show, they always talk about engagement with the local community. And in your article, uh, you specifically talk about your work with the community design group, the CDG. Um, 
Tell us about the co-design process. The client, which was a double-headed client, um, Haringey Regen and Haringey Parks, had formulated the community design group um, just before the start of our involvement on the project. Um, the group was, as you would hope it to be, diverse and representative. So we had parents with young children, older people, people with enhanced access needs, young people, children from the local school and the process of co-design itself it has taken us a long time and that is I think the nature of the beast with co-design it's very hard to put it into a tight envelope it will take as long as it takes to some extent so I think we were keen to be very responsive we set out a framework of topics for discussion but we to some extent, had to sit back and listen. And that was very much the starting point of the, the process. We didn't go with an agenda. We didn't go with our initial thoughts. We went with open ears and open faces to try and build those relationships. So it, it evolved um, and it, it really did strengthen the, the narrative and the objectives of the design. There were a series of 10 objectives agreed with the CDG group. And it really has a positive impact on the master plan that has evolved. So don't list all 10 of them, but some of the, sure. what were some of the issues that came so out? So safety was up there. Um, so making the park more accessible and safer. So looking at the, the topic of inclusivity, that overspilled into play very sensibly as well. So in increasing and enhancing the play offer for all children and, and local young people. That then dovetails into sports, and that was a key theme. So to in, improve and enhance the existing sports provision. And then similar issues to do with climate change resilience. So getting biodiversity really up there. Um, making that a priority, looking at um, localised flooding, lighting, all of these very kind of traditional park threads, if you like. Were there some conflicts and compromises, particularly in terms of community need and climate resilience that you had to deal Interesting with? Interesting question. I would say, on the whole, they were very comfortable bedfellows, which was great because I think another one of the key themes that resulted was this theme of stewardship. So getting people involved in the park. That was mirrored in the fact that there is a designation for a site of importance for nature conservation to the north based on community participation and engagement. And people's focus and interest were about getting increased use, opening up the park to a wider audience. It was already well loved and used by certain groups, but we really wanted to open that up. And that was bringing in the idea of things like dead hedge building, log piling, getting suds into the park and removing some of these issues associated with flooding. So making it more, more usable for them. Let me ask you a question about this. A part of the brief was to um, create a community hub within the park. And part of your discussions led to your decision that the existing building was too constrained in terms of form and structure. And you've opted for a new passive house building. Um, let me ask you a question about retrofit. Obviously, there was a lot of interest in retrofit, mainly around, um, well, very large post-war buildings um, and indeed the most recent decision about the decision to retain the um, Master Spencer's um, store in Oxford Street. Um, you did go for a new building. Um, how did you How did you approach this? 
So we did a really methodical study on the cost-benefit analysis um, of the existing form and fabric of the building, also the siting of the building, um, which I think was a challenge of equal weighting. And the the verdict was that there was actually a, a similarity between a new build and restoring the existing building. However, we were never going to be able to resolve some of the urban design issues of having a park building very much embedded at the back of the south of the park. What we wanted to create was vibrancy, enhanced animation, a longer period of use extending into evening hours. And that was felt best achieved by bringing this building to the streetscape and having a really clear public frontage so it was a legible, um, clear identity for the, for the park going forwards. Make Space for Girls, who have written for the magazine and have looked at the way in which public spaces are designed and managed for the differing needs of young men and women and girls, um, have published guidelines and indeed one of the other articles in the journal uh, looks at the work that's taken place at both Liverpool University and in Glasgow. And I wanted to ask you how you have approached the issue of designing a park that feels fully inclusive to women and girls. As well as the CDG process, the community co-design process, there was a series of targeted workshop events. And one of those was with a group of young women and girls within the, the park area. So again, it was a lot of listening about what are the current barriers to them using the park? Um, what are the issues that were to be tackled? And it's fair to say a lot of that did, did dovetail within the feedback that we had already received about sight line safety, lighting, use out of hours, but also the, the amenity offer, so the sports, the kind of more passive leisure areas as well. And that was definitely a strong um, thread of feedback that we received. And we've responded to that through the provision of a new netball court, um, which was re well received. Um, we've obviously got the complementary uses within the hub building. So where young girls were saying we want somewhere safe and welcoming to go to do homework and to meet friends, that is something that can now take place within the hub, but also within the plaza spaces spilling outside of it. So lots of social seating groups set within verdant planting. That was, again, a strong line of feedback that they wanted to feel part of the natural environment and not just isolated into one defined group. They wanted to have choice. And I want to ask about gates and railings. Um, will there be railings? So it's a big park and we are taking a, a strategic approach, looking at different boundary conditions in each instance. So to answer your question in terms of the first phase, which is the north of the park, we are taking down the railings on the eastern edge, which will enhance the connection to the Harris Academy Tottenham and Harringay's future aspirations for a school street scheme. So we're very much kind of future facing. Those railings will be either recycled or repurposed as part of our circular economy strategy, which also, by the way, looks at repurposing steels from the building and using some of the crush materials arising as well. But elsewhere, where we've got active uses which are quite close to some of the existing roads, it felt sensible to maintain the railing and that more traditional park character to give a defined edge so children and um, parents understand the limitations of where children can go. And in terms of a perception of safety through crossing the park, how have you addressed that? So that's one of the key threads, as you'd expect, of the master plan. In the north of the park, there's an existing diagonal route. It's quite fast. It's quite a commuter route that will be widened to reduce conflict. It will be 
lit, but with better uniformity than existing. So we avoid this kind of harsh glare of light and then darkness, which is so problematic in terms of sight lines and safety. And then to the south, where we've got the new residential development alongside us, which provides new access points into the park, we will be feeding people up through to the north of the park by these active uses that will extend further into the night time. So having really generous, clear sight lines, well-lit trees with clear stems, all those traditional tips and techniques that landscape architects use, we feel it will really lead to uh, an enhancement of safety. Brilliant, thank you. Now, both of you have made reference to climate emergency, and I'm interested to know the way in which the need to address climate resilience as well as biodiversity net gain um, is now having an influence on your general practice. So, Neil, what, what, how is it having an effect on you and your colleagues? Well, I think landscape architects have always led the way in devising climate resilient approaches to design, sustainable approaches to the delivery of our projects. But I think what has been encouraging is that we're now starting to see clients asking for this directly. It's written into the briefs. It's not something we're having to sell that we may have done 10, 20 years ago. And I think that's also enforced by changes in policy as well, which support that change to agenda in, in the briefs that are coming out. Where, where do you think that change is coming from in terms of your relationship with clients, commissioners of work, um, local authorities, what, what, where do you see that trade? I think it's coming from both the top and the bottom. So I think it's coming through policy and client requirements, but it's also being demanded at, at community level. People know that these are priorities for them, for their generation, for their future generations. Um, so it's great to think that we can actually satisfy both of those um, demands. So I completely agree. It, it, it's from the top, it's from the bottom. You're seeing it on, on every project we're involved with. It's, it's completely on the agenda. And I suppose what's interesting is a whole industry is now being built out of this. Uh, you've got sustainability guidelines with uh, BRIAM, with LEED. You've got sustainability ambassadors and professionals. There's the whole net zero agenda that you're seeing at the, the, the top international level and then that that's just filtering down to everything that we're involved with so um yes it's, it's exciting to see this this change that's coming through i think also something i've been thinking about more recently is the significance of the regional disparity though so i think we can't forget that as we sit in the london bubble with london policy Perhaps it's unfair to say, you know, across the spectrum, but there are parts of the UK where it is not generating as much traction and it should. And, and we can only hope that, you know, the, the ripple effect um, without being too kind of, you know, London centric about it, that there needs to be less difference between parts of the UK and the approaches being taken, I think. So how do you both see the role of landscape architects over the next five or 10 years? Well, I think it's really important to, do events like we are today to highlight projects that are championing these principles and I think a really important part of that is demonstrating the value these approaches can take whilst some of the impacts are not felt immediately when we're looking at things more holistically and, and long term there's some really significant benefits that are being brought through to um, the wider public or all user groups of, of parks streets and of our cities so I think um that demonstrating a value of what we're achieving with our, our projects is really important. To complement that, 
I think it's up to us to continue to build the profile of the landscape architect as a dis- discipline. And I know that's been said for a long time and it will probably be said henceforth. But it is really important both for us to kind of build momentum, cement our, our position within built environment design teams coming in early doors, but then also at the the kind of the other end of the spectrum where we are reaching out to people to find relationships and to ensure that we can reach out in really clear language of what we can offer um, so that we do get these briefs bouncing back to us, um, which have the input of, of local community members as well. Kate and Neil, thank you very much. That was a really fascinating discussion. Um, If you'd like to read the article by both Kate and Neil, you can have a look in the current edition of Landscape, which is available to download free from the Landscape Institute website. If you'd like to catch up, because this is uh, podcast number 11 this year, all of our podcasts are online and you can catch up with them on Spotify and Apple. Thank you very much for listening. 